Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon series, Beloved, is walking through the entire book of John's gospel. The last time we were in John's gospel, Jesus was in the town of Samaritan, and he had just ministered to the Samaritan woman by the well. And the Samaritans there invited Jesus and his disciples, presumably his disciples too, to stay with him for two days. Jesus leaving there is where we pick up God's word. We're going to read John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54 throughout the sermon this morning. So I invite you to open up your devices or Bibles, or you're welcome to follow along with the words on the screen behind me. Would you please join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I'm in the company of friends who I trust. So I trust that as I share this with you, you won't think any sort of way of me. Recently, I purchased a book and I started reading it. It's a book about peak performance peak performance physically and mentally. Why am I a little shy about telling you that story? Well, it's because the field of human performance and peak performance, it's godless. It's Christless. When you think about it, so much of what you read and what you hear people talk about is this idea that if they believe it, they can achieve it, that all they need to do is tap into their potential, that if you just do this one thing, well, then you can awaken the giant within you. You can become this Ebermensch, this ideal sort of human being, limitless, potentialless, unmatched. But nothing could be more the opposite of what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that I am a lost and condemned creature, and yet I'm purchased and won from sin, death, and the power of the devil, not by myself, but by Christ's holy and precious blood. And now my life, well, it's to live under him and to serve him in all righteousness, in all humility. That's what scripture tells me. So you're asking, okay, so why did you buy this book? Why are you reading it? Two reasons. Let me give you the first. The first comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It reads this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. In other words, you can learn something from anyone as a Christian if you take everything captive to Christ, if you take every idea, every science, every idea about human performance, peak performance, the arts or the sciences or anything else in between, any idea, you set itself up 
to Christ. And anything that doesn't pass muster, well, it's demolished by God and we make everything that's left over obedient to Christ. In other words, I can study, I can learn about what people say about the human mind, about the human body, so that I can give more glory, better glory to God and others by serving them, pointing more people to God. That's it. First reason, here's the second reason that I'm reading this book this one in particular. It's because this book doesn't do what so many books do in the self-help genre. It doesn't fall prey to the just this one thing myth. So many people try to be novel and simplify things by saying, if you just do X or you stop doing Y, well then Z will be better. This book doesn't do it. This book is blunt, it is honest, and the fact that we're complex people who have complex problems, some problems we're probably not even aware of. The author doesn't say it, and the book doesn't make the claim, but what it admits is is we're broken people. We're lost people, and while they wouldn't word it this way, what they're getting at is the fact that we have a sinful nature. Why do I mention that? That second reason? Well, Peeves are bad pets to keep, so I try not to keep too many of them. But one of the greatest pet peeves that I have is that just this one thing myth. You hear that if you just do this one thing, you can have better health. If you just do this one thing, you can have a stronger relationship, a better marriage. If you just do this one thing, you can have more financial well-being. I can't stand that idea because it's not that easy. It's not that helpful, therefore, to say it is. In fact, it's unwise. It it doesn't work. But I tell you all that because this morning, I'm going to commit that pet peeve, and I'm going to commit to it. There is an exception to the just this one thing myth. There is just one thing. That if you do it, if you understand it, if you align your life around it, everything's better. You are better. Your life is better. Everyone in your life is better off. But don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Listen to God's word in John chapter 4 that begins this way. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. On its face, verse 44, it doesn't make much sense. The idea that no prophet is is welcomed in their own country, the Galileans are welcoming Jesus. What do we make of this? Well, they certainly welcomed him. They certainly invited him and, and glad that he was there because they looked at him like a celebrity. They welcomed him like a celebrity. 
They thought he was a great guru who was giving good advice, who was potentially a great liberator, who would free them from Roman rule. But they didn't look at him as the savior of the world. They liked all of the things that he did, but they had listened to none of the things that he said, his word. We read on. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Who knows if Jesus stopped in Cana to go see how the newlywed couple was doing, whose wedding he had just attended. We don't know why he stopped there, but what we do know is what happens when he stops there. A certain royal official, not his servant, not his ambassador, but he himself comes and he begs Jesus, heal my son. And what we hear next, it's cringeworthy. It's like Jesus takes a bucket of cold water, looks at the agonizing, the anxious father, and dumps it right in his face. This is what he says. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. you people. Jesus lumps this certain royal official in with the Galileans who are just looking for a sign. He lumps them in and he says, you're never going to believe me unless I do signs, unless I do wonders that blow your minds. No, your hearts, your minds, they'll never believe me. Doesn't seem like the Jesus we know, does it? But what Jesus is doing here is nothing that is cold, nothing that is harsh. What Jesus is doing is giving this man a one-sentence lesson and a test in faith. And the man passes with flying colors. Listen to what he says. The royal official said, Sir, Come down before my child dies. He's done talking about his son. Instead, what he does is double down on his plea and he says, Come now before my child, my little boy, the light of our home, the one who puts smiles on our faces, jumping around, laughing, talking to us. Before he dies, please come. Now we see the Jesus we know. Go. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. Jesus didn't move from that spot. He didn't give him a sign. He didn't give him a wonder. He gave him his word. And what we see in that, 
What we see in that is perhaps the most overlooked and underappreciated miracle in this entire account. I'm going to go so far as to say perhaps one of the most unnoticed and yet most often seen miracles in the entire book of the Bible. Someone believes Jesus' words. This man turns around and goes with only a word in his pocket. Yes, the boy's going to live. The boy's going to heal. He's going to be better off because of it. But the miracle, the miracle we need to focus on is what Jesus does to this certain royal official. Let me read the rest. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday, and one in an the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. (laughs) Yes, the miracle is that the boy's fever broke. Yes, it's a miracle that the boy lives, but that's not why this account is in scripture. That's not the only reason why this is here. These words are written, this account of this certain royal official is written so that you might believe, so that you might take Jesus at his word, and that you might have life in his name. It's not just about the son having life. It's not just about this certain royal official believing in Jesus. These words are written so that you take Jesus at his word and you have life in his name. What we're getting at when we look at the miracle of what Jesus did, take this man and give him only a word, and yet with that word, turn him completely around. With that word, send him back home packing with just a word in his pocket. What we're getting at is God's word and what it does and what it means for you and for me. There's so much that we could say about God's word. There's a hundred sermons that could be preached on the essence of God's word. But this morning, let me focus you on just one idea. God's word works. God's word works. And so you can take Jesus at his word. But it's one thing to understand that idea, to to acknowledge that idea. It's a completely entire matter to live by it, to believe it. So let's unpack that idea that God's word works so you can take Jesus at his word. Let's start by looking at a couple of verses that we just read, verses 46 and 47. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son who was close to death. Unless you're familiar with Galilean geography, it's a detail that you might have missed. Capernaum is up here, and, well, Cana in Galilee is down here. 
They're not right next door to each other. They're 17 miles apart. And I kid you not, it is uphill from Capernaum to get to Cana. It's over rough terrain, rocky roads that, guess what? They're not paved. And so this certain royal official has to do a lot, has to go out of his way to get to Jesus. We know that they met at one o'clock and we don't know how he got there, if he ran, if he walked, or if he took a horse or a chariot. But one thing that we do know is that he had to get up in the morning early to get there and go to see Jesus. This certain royal official went to go see a certain poor carpenter to beg. What does that show you about this certain royal official? What does it show you or tell you about his attitude towards what this certain poor carpenter had to say? More importantly, what does this show you about you? More importantly, what does this show you about your attitude towards what God's word has to say? God's word works. We know this, but is it worth it? Is it worth it to you to go out of your way to make God's word a part of your morning, a part of your evening, a part of your Sunday morning? Is it worth it to you to schedule God's time, God word time in your oh so busy life. That's saying nothing of actually prioritizing it in your life. Is it worth it to you? Is it worth the hard work to get the kids ready and get them up and out of the door? Is it worth it to you to, to sit the entire family down, kids included, in front of the TV or the computer and listen to it? Is it worth it to you to, to put on a mask and, and come hear God's word because that's just where we are this day and age? Is it worth it to you to, to take your headphones and your phone or your computer or the TV and, and sit down in front of it and, and, and pause, hit pause on life and, and listen to God's word and worship instead of trying to do chores or trying to do errands because what you do and what your work does is is taking a precedent. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to study God's word, to know it better, to know it deeper? Is it worth it to you to, to research it, to, to ask your questions, to find out what God's word actually says? Think about that. Is God's word worth it? Does what it work and what it does that important to me? We think about those questions and it becomes apparent, maybe, maybe that's just it. We don't think that often of those things. We don't think that highly of, of God's word. But here's the mystery. Here's the wonderful mystery about God's word is that it works on you. It works in you, 
and it works through you and it doesn't one bit depend on you. God's word works on you, in you, and through you and it doesn't depend one bit about you. God's word works on you and in you whenever you you hear it preached, whenever you hear God's word read, whenever you read it for yourself. God's word works through you whenever you speak it and proclaim it to other people in your life. God's word works how? It works why? Well, because God's word is God's word. In the beginning was God's word, and that is the thing that made everything in the world. God's word is the only way and the only means through which he wants to deal with you. And he shows you that because the word became flesh and came and made his dwelling among us. That's John chapter one. Jesus Christ came and the same Jesus who created the entire world is the Jesus who showed up and turned a certain royal official around, healed a boy with a fever, and shows up to you again and again in his word. God's word works, and it works still today. He shows us this in Isaiah chapter 55. He talks about what it means that God's word works. God says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it empty without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's Isaiah. This is the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good purpose. Isaiah says God does have a purpose with his word. The New Testament, 2 Timothy talks about what that purpose is. It talks about that it is making you wise for salvation, teaching you, rebuking you, correcting you, equipping you. Romans 10, 17 sums it up nicely. Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. I keep saying it, God's word works. But what does it work to do? How does it work? Well, God's word doesn't work to iron my shirt. God's word doesn't work to help me change my oil. God's word does work, does work to accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. And that is to reveal to you the God that you have. That is to reveal to us the Alpha Omega, God who created all things, God Almighty. It is to show us that he has opened up his heart to us and poured out his love. God's word works to open up our hearts to God and restore a right relationship with him because God's word does not only show us who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus, God's word actually accomplishes what he wanted to give us in Christ Jesus. Life, faith, and salvation. What God's word does, how God's word works is to remove all of your sins, give you all his forgiveness, give you faith where there is none, and strengthen faith where there is some. That's what God's word does. That's why it works. That's why it's the one thing that makes everything 
everything better. One of the strangest, strangest parts about the text that we just read comes when Jesus replies to this certain royal official who just wants his son to be well. Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. It seems strange that Jesus would respond that way, doesn't it? It seems strange until you realize what Jesus is really getting at. Jesus is saying, I did not come to be an entertainer. I did not come for some new age enlightenment. I didn't come for pleasantries and I didn't come to just please you. I came so that you would believe in me. So quit treating it casually. So quit treating it coldly. What God's word has to say, take Jesus at his word. His word is not a self-help book. His word is not some book that's gonna help you achieve peak performance in whatever area in your life that you need it. His book is not just something that's optional for you to study whenever you want to. His word works and it works to give you faith. It works to give you the greatest gift that God gives, Christ Jesus, his forgiveness and eternal life in his name. Let me put it this way. God's word does not work like cliches. God's word works out realities. God speaks and reality results. God's word doesn't work like cliches. It works out realities. That's good news for you and me. It's good news for you and me because it means that, well, just like Jesus to the certain royal official, it might not always give us all the feels. We might not walk away from it feeling all warm and fuzzy and motivated about life, but God's word works to do what God wants it to do for you. It's good news for you and me because it both humbles and yet gives confidence to the anxious teen by showing them what they have in Christ, their identities in him. It works to convict the worried parent, but also cause joy. God's word does not work like cliches. It works out realities. And that means it both disciplines and also delights all people. God's word works. It works to create the universe. It works to heal this sick son. It works to turn a certain royal official around. And it works in your life too. It works to give you all of God's gift, his forgiveness, life, and salvation in him. That is why I can say it is the one thing. It is the one thing. It makes everything better. It makes you better. It makes your life better. It makes everyone you come in contact with in life better. I was reading God's word with a friend of mine. And because I don't get enough of our 15-week sermon series in John, I proposed to him that we should read John's gospel. So we did, and we are. And the other day, we read John chapter 4, and we talked about the story, the account of the certain royal official. My friend had a really perceptive comment. 
He works in the financial industry. And after we thought about and talked about what it must have been like, what it must have felt like for that father to turn around with nothing but a word in his pocket, he said, what a great lesson. What a great lesson for people in 2021. What he went on to say is that in his industry, in the financial industry, well, people want immediate results, immediate satisfaction. They want to invest and they want to see it a return immediately. We talked about it. It's no different there. We get bored, click, we want Netflix. We get hungry, we can open the fridge and if it's not there, click, we can order our groceries and they're there like that. We don't have something in our house, click Amazon. Just put your thumb on it. You don't even have to type in your credit card. That's how it works, right? Immediate satisfaction. We're conditioned to think that way and we need to be careful because our desires to immediately be satisfied they can so easily push out how God's word works. Immediate satisfaction. It, it, it's not how the stock market works. It, it's not how real life works. It's not how God's word works either. So often we don't see that our sins are forgiven on a Sunday morning. So often we read God's word and we don't seal him, see him heal our aches and our pains. We don't see immediately that life gets better. And so what easily happens because we're so conditioned to want immediate satisfaction and gratification, well, that we treat God's word as something that can just be pushed aside, that that's not worth it. We say, I don't really need a pastor. I don't really need a preacher in my life speaking God's word into my life. That's not what God's word says. That's not taking Jesus at his word. About preachers, about pastors who speak the word of God into your life, he says this. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. We want to be immediately satisfied, find immediate gratification. So we tell ourselves, I don't really need church. I can do church whenever and wherever I feel like it. But that's not taking Jesus at his word. In Hebrews, we read these words, this encouragement. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God's word, it reveals God to us, and it reveals hard truths about us to ourselves. That oftentimes, we don't have a place for God's word in our lives that is so conditioned by immediate results, by immediate satisfaction. And so what ends up happening is, is people say, well, God's word hasn't done anything for my life. It hasn't made my life better. It hasn't healed my aches and pains. I don't see it really working for me, this whole church thing. And so we tell ourselves we can do without it. And people who say that they're right, without God's word, things aren't better off. 
without God's word, pastors are worthless. Without God's word, churches are a waste of real estate. And without God's word, going to church, it is a waste of time. But with it, with God's word, taking Jesus at the word, receiving from Jesus the word that he gives there in people, proclaiming it to one another, pastor or not, the church gathered around it, what you see is his life, his gifts, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his holiness, his identity, his purpose, and everything in your life is enlivened with purpose. Everything that we do in life without God's word, our family, our jobs, our relationships, our schools, anything that we pursue, it is nothing but vain and valueless pursuits that we just do to fill the void of time between now and the time we die. But with God's word, what you have in your hands is life, salvation, What you have is a gift from God, the God who makes dead things alive, law and gospel, struggle and hope. What you have there is God who infuses your life with meaning and purpose because what it gives you is Christ Jesus who lifts the veil off all things and reveals everything that you have in him. You have an eternal life with him. That's God's word. God's word works. It works for you because Christ is for you. And Christ is the word who's made flesh and made his dwelling among us. What Jesus gives us, just like that certain royal official, is a one lesson, one sentence test about faith, about believing him, about taking Jesus at his word. Go, Jesus replied, Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. That's it. That's the word that Jesus gave this certain royal official. I mean, what did this man know about Jesus? He turned water into wine. He did some cool things in Jerusalem at the Passover. What did he know about him? Maybe more than that, maybe less. But that's not important. What's important is what you know about him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John 1. Take Jesus at his word. Look the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of the world, and that includes you as well. Take Jesus at his word. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not Condemned. Take Jesus at his word. His word works. 
Today is Valentine's Day, and it's a day where so many people who love one another think long and hard about, about what they should do to show people in their lives that they love them, what gifts they should buy very commercialized holiday. And so we have some easy go-to options. We have the flowers, we have the chocolates, we have the cards. But this Valentine's Day, maybe as a personal aside, think about the weight of your words. Think about the weight of your words and, and what that conveys. But more than that, think about the work, the weight of God's word. Today's not only Valentine's Day, today is Transfiguration Sunday. It's the day when people who love God can stop wondering about how they can show their love to God. There on the holy mountain, God told you. He said this about his son. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In other words, Take Jesus at his word. That is the best way, the greatest way, how you can show God that you love him. But don't take my word for it. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Amen.